Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to Zephaniah chapter 3. We're going to read verses 14 down through the end of the chapter, and then take a look at those same verses. It was uh, in seminary, I remember uh, a pastor came and actually just focused on verse 17 in one of our chapels, and it uh, so hit me upside the head in like a two by four in a good way. If there's a good way, you can be hit upside the head like that. Um, I continually meditate on this, think about it, and uh, it's been a real encouragement to me. I hope it will be the same for you as we take a look at it. So Zephaniah chapter 3 at verse 14, let's pray and then we'll, we'll start reading. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. It uh, comes at us, uh, comes to us from so many different directions. And so when we're hurting, it heals us. When we're proud, it humbles us. When we're just brought down to the bottom, you lift us up. So you know what each of us needs. We barely know what we need ourselves. So we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you'd work powerfully in our lives through your word, that you'd exalt Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, Zephaniah 3 at verse 14. Uh, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So, beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here uh, this morning. Uh, some have regarded this as kind of the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, a very rich passage. And Zephaniah was prophesying uh, during the, the reign of Josiah. It was kind of a, a spiritual uh, a revitalization time between 640 and 609 BC. Hilkiah had found the book of the law in the temple. You know, so all these encouraging things were going on. And yet uh, we know that in about 30 years, uh, the people of Judah are going to be brought into exile. And so we've got this great uh, good news that's coming on the heels of chapter 1 in Zephaniah, which is an announcement of judgment, that God is indeed going to judge the people of Judah, of the people of Jerusalem, and it's going to be difficult. And yet the book ends on this great uptick of a note. Uh, uh, so it, it can really help us in our difficulties and in even how we view the present and the future. So I want us to notice just four things as we walk through the passage. Number one, who is our God? Who's the God who's speaking this? Secondly, what is, what is He going to do or what has He done for us? Thirdly, how does He look at His people? How does He look at us? And then finally, how do we respond to, to this? So first, who is the God who's speaking? Verse 17a, the Lord, your God. That's the one who's speaking. And if you'll notice, if you have an ESV, it'll be Lord in all caps. It might be Jehovah or Yahweh if you have a, a more wooden translation. Uh, this is the covenant Lord who revealed himself uh, in the book of Exodus to Moses, Exodus chapter 3, as the I am who I am. 
where we get the, the language of Yahweh or Jehovah or the Lord in all caps. And this isn't meaningless. Uh, you know, if we preached a sermon on the Lord every time we looked at an Old Testament passage, we'd have to preach a lot of sermons regarding uh, who the Lord is. But I want to just review this. What does his name mean? He says, the Lord your God, their king. What does the Lord mean, this covenant uh, language? It means at least three things. Uh, and I want to read just Exodus 3, beginning at verse 15, and we'll catch what these, what these things are. God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, because Moses asked them, look, I'm going to go tell them who you are. Who are you? <laughs> who, who do I tell them you are? I'm the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed that you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I will promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So there's three things in particular that I wanted to boil down this. What does it mean when the Lord says, I'm the Lord, all caps, covenant language? It means that He's unchangingly faithful. If you notice in Exodus 3, when the Lord speaks, He says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This faithfulness isn't something that God could have demonstrated to the Israelites uh, by showing up the first time. Uh, you, you wonder why uh, God didn't uh, reveal more of himself to Moses and reveal his faithfulness to Moses right from the start, but he couldn't have because faithfulness is proven over centuries. It's proven over time. It takes a long time to prove God's faithfulness. So why didn't the Lord show up to Abraham and say, hey, I'm the Lord? Why did he wait a long time until we get to Moses before he finally revealed his name? Because it takes time to prove that we're faithful. Uh, Herman Boving put it this way, the name Yahweh is the description and guarantee of the fact that God is and remains the God of His people, unchanging in His grace and faithfulness. And that is something that could not have been disclosed before the time of Moses. A long time had to pass to prove that God is faithful and unchanging. A person's faithfulness can only be tested in the long run, and especially in times of distress. So God didn't tell this to Abraham, didn't tell it to Noah, didn't tell it to Adam and Eve, but waited until we get to Moses, and then after that uses this name a lot in the Old Testament because part of this name involves faithfulness and faithfulness has to be proven over time. But this name also means that God isn't just faithful, He's also sympathetic. In verse 16 of Exodus 3, He said this, I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So this name means that God cares. He's a God of compassion. And then thirdly, He's a God who rescues. Exodus 3:17. I will promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. So he's a God who rescues. So this God who's showing up to the Israelites and giving them this great news, even though judgment's about 30 or 40 years away and they're going to go through a difficult time off the land, the God who shows up to give them this great news is faithful, he's sympathetic toward his people, he cares about them, and he's a God who rescues his people as well. Now, what is he going to do for them? This God shows up, Zephaniah chapter 3, what is he going to do for them? five things, I want to, or actually four things I want to look at. Number one, he takes away the judgments against his people. Verse 15 of Zephaniah 3. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Now, again, this is a bit confusing because if you, Zephaniah 1 begins with a note of judgment. God's guaranteeing that he's going to come and judge the people of Jerusalem. They're going to undergo the consequences due to their sins. Deuteronomy 28 had curses for the covenant. One of them was you don't, you don't take Sabbaths off. I remove you from the land. 
So God's going to come against his people and bring judgment. And yet here we're told at the end of Zephaniah, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. What's going on? Because judgment is coming in 30 to 40 years. How have you taken the judgments away? What Zephaniah is envisioning is a time after the exile is over. Some future time after the Babylonians have brought the people of Jerusalem in 34 years away off the land in 30 to 40 years, and they've gone through all that suffering and all that difficulty, he's envisioning a time after that when God will remove all the judgments against them. Uh, how will this judgment against them be removed? How is God going to find a way to remove the judgments against the people of Israel? Because they kept sinning even after they returned after the exile. They sinned in the land. They sinned during the exile, but they also sinned, as we know from Malachi, after they came back from the exile. So how can God find a way to remove the judgments against them? Well, Galatians 3.13 tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's how God's going to remove the judgments against them. That's how He's going to remove the judgments from all of His people. Someone's going to have to stand in the place of His people and take the judgment due us. And Christ did that. He actually redeemed us from the curse or the judgment of the law by becoming a curse or one being judged in our place. So that's how God can make this promise. I'll remove the judgments against them because he knows Christ is going to come and take the blows of the Israelites' sins, take the blows due the Israelites for their sin, and also the blows due us for our sins. I want to just mention one thing before we move on to the next point, and that is this. It's really easy, and God knows how easy it is to become discouraged, beloved, in this life. The Lord in His grace knowing as people are going to be in exile and mourning, and they're going to go through horrific circumstances to get there, many of them watching their kids die at the hands of the Babylonians. They're going to be crying on the shores of Babylon by the rivers. They're going to be wishing they could be back in Israel worshiping God. They're going to go through difficulty, and God knows it. And before they even go into exile, <laughs> He gives them something to look forward to. He gives them a song to sing, as it were. And so He accommodates them by telling you, look, there's going to come a day when all my judgments against you, when all the consequences to your sins are going to be over. There's going to come a day. Another way of saying it is this. You people have been unfaithful. You're going to suffer for it. You're going to see the consequences to your sins. You're going to suffer it. But I want you to know that the day is coming after that when you will no longer have to suffer judgments against your sins. You'll no longer have to suffer the consequences of your sins. The day will be coming. Sometimes we as Christians get this wrong. I want to explore this just briefly. We think that in Christ, all the hardships have no pain and the consequences of sin can be relativized. And once we're in Christ, uh, we can just overlook difficulty as if there, it's no problem at all. But that doesn't work. Uh, if you know, Try telling an addict that, whose family is absolutely torn apart because of their addiction. Try telling them that all the consequences of sins are no big deal. When they're facing the reality that I believe in Jesus, I sinned greatly, and actually the consequences of my sins really hurt. There's judgments against me for my sin, and this really hurts. Not God against me, but God for me, and just consequences of sins. Try telling that to a believer who's made some really horrible choices early on in life, and their life absolutely falls apart. It doesn't work. Sins really have consequences, just like they did for Israel, and we will really have to face those consequences, just like Israel will really have to face exile, and God knows this. And then in the midst of it, He also gives us hope. So what I want to tease out here, just 
uh, help us to understand is that the joy that God promises us in the future for Israel, this future glory, this hope, and for us, heaven to come, doesn't negate the fact that Israel has to go into exile. And it doesn't negate the fact that when we sin, beloved, and we do horrible things, there are earthly consequences that we're going to have to face in the midst of facing those consequences. When they're painful, when we've really messed it up, and we're five years later, 10 years later, 40 years later, one month later, and we're having to go through the pain of really bad decisions. In the midst of that, God comes to us and says, I want to tell you something. There's going to come a time when there'll be no more consequences for sins. When I'll remove all my judgments against you. When, when you won't even sin, let alone have consequences for sins. And that's coming in the future, beloved. It's not here right now. Beloved, all of us are going to face this. We say things we shouldn't have. We do things we shouldn't have. Sometimes we think things we shouldn't have. And then the fallout occurs. And sometimes it can be massive, lots of pain. Sometimes it can be small, but we're all going to face that. When we're in that situation, God wants us to know the day's coming when you'll no longer have to deal with that. There'll be no consequences for sin because we won't be committing any. I think that's why Peter would say in 1 Peter 3.13, set your hope fully on the grace that will, be, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on that grace that will be brought to us. In other words, when this life is difficult, just set our hope in heaven. Set our hope fully there. Because sometimes it's easy, to, it, it, it's tempting to think this, Lord, I hope and I have my hope set on this, that my life is going to go better. But for the Israelites, their life was actually going to get way worse. For our life, it actually might get way worse. So Peter says, put our hope in heaven. Set our hope on the day when we'll see Jesus. And then we'll be able to manage through this life. But secondly, what the Lord has done is not just remove the judgments, but he's cleared away our enemies. Uh, if you uh, take a look, I'm looking for the verse here. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. And the next phrase, he has cleared away your enemies. So again, for the people of Israel, this sounds interesting, doesn't it? Because the enemy of or the people of Judah, the enemy of the people of Judah is Babylon and Babylon's doing really well. <laughs> they're not off the map. They're not cleared away. In fact, they're going to come and get the people in Jerusalem and carry them off. But the Lord says the day's coming when I'm going to clear away your enemies. So again, it's not something in the immediate future for Israel. It's something in the more distant future after their enemies will actually take them out. And again, beloved, as it was for Israel, it's the exact same for us. That God makes this promise, he will clear away our enemies. Well, what are our enemies? We commonly know them as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in some ways, they've already been cleared off to a, to a certain extent. But one day, they'll be cleared off uh, fully and finally. Regarding our enemy, the world, Jesus said this, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So if God's going to clear away our enemies, it means he's got to strengthen us and put us in such a spot and status that we can actually deal with the world that we're in. And he has. He's put us in Christ, and Christ says, I've overcome the world. So when we go out into the world, we don't have to be scared to death to be in the world. We don't have to be scared to go anywhere out in the world and serve Christ in the middle of it because we know that Christ has overcome it. Regarding the flesh, Romans 7, 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. 
So even victory over our flesh has been granted to us to a, to a limited extent. None of us will ever be able to say there's come a day when the passions of our flesh came up and we said no every time. None of us will ever arrive at perfection. But the Lord has cleared away our enemies in the sense that he's given the Christian a spirit of self-control. That's one of the fruits of the spirit. So that we don't have to be scared of our flesh, but we can actually tell ourselves no. And then the last uh, enemy, the devil or death, Hebrews 2.14 tells us this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. How has God cleared away our enemies? He's even taken this greatest of all enemies that we're all going to have to face, and he's mitigated that enemy. He's stomped on that enemy. He's become victorious over that enemy. So that now even death serves God purpose, God's purposes. So when we die, we go to be with the Lord in glory rather than to hell for eternal destruction. So this God comes to the Israelites and comes to us and says, I've got a handle on your enemies. I'm clearing them away. And we know that when Christ comes again, all of our enemies will be vanquished entirely. Everything will be finished. We'll no longer have to face an enemy. Something else about the Lord who comes, what he does for us is that he's in the midst to save us. If you look at verse 17, we're told, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And for the people of Judah, this probably meant something along the lines of, I guess uh, we're gonna be saved from Babylon. I guess we're going to be saved from the Chaldeans. Maybe we'll be saved from the Assyrians. Maybe we'll be saved from another country. In any case, the Lord's going to rescue us. But little did they know that when God talks about, I'm in the midst of you to rescue, little did they know what kind of flesh this would take on literally, how God would come into their midst to save them. And when the gospel writers finally get around to writing their accounts and get around to seeing Jesus after he calls them to follow him. We get a real up close view of what God does for his people by being in the midst of them to save them. Uh, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, John 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Romans 8, 3, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. 1 Timothy three sixteen, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Beloved, God in the midst to save his people means that God comes down. This may sound normal to us, right? God the creator came down. So this God who comes to the Israelites and says, you're going to be judged. In the midst of your judgment, I want you to remember something. I'm right there in your midst and I'm going to rescue you. And when Christ came, he showed us just how much this means. God coming down not to live in the clouds, you know, up on like a 747 flying around the world, but God coming down to be born of a virgin and to look us eye to eye, to be a certain height, a certain weight, to go around teaching and preaching and be rejected. A God to stand trial, to stand tried before Pontius Pilate, before Caiaphas, before Herod, and then a God to hang because all our sins were imputed to him who never committed any sin so that we can become righteous. That's what this means. The people of Jerusalem could hardly fathom this, but we looking back and see what's going on. God in the midst to save, well, what does this look like? It means God coming all the way down to save you and me. 
Does God love me and care for me when I'm going through difficulty? When the consequences of my sin, uh, when I feel those painfully and keenly, does God still care? Oh yes, he does care. Yeah, he came down here actually to feel our infirmities, to feel our woe as the hymn goes, to understand what it is to be a human being under the weight of sin and all its consequences. Christ came down here and felt it more than you and I ever will. Because when he was punished on the cross, he was credited with every sin of every believer who's ever lived, and he paid for everyone in his body on the tree, bearing our curse. So God indeed does care very personally. And then the last thing that God does for us as people is he turns our shame to praise. Look at verse 19, if you would, Zephaniah 3. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown into all the earth. So shame is often associated with these two things. It's interesting. He'll save the lame and gather the outcast. So the people who are living in shame, as it were, uh, in this context, are those who are lame or handicapped. Uh, could be, uh, we might use the language of people lame from old age, born lame, become lame through accidents or disease or illness. And then also the outcast are, are being shamed. Those who are unpopular, those who are cast out, who don't have a home, they're hated, which will be the Israelites, it is the Israelites in, in the current passage, but it will become them more and more as they are in exile. And indeed, that's really the life of a Christian, a life of the world not liking us because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What do we want and desire when we're handicapped and when we're outcast? We want someone to notice us and actually delight in us. Uh, what's characteristic of people who are handicapped generally? What, what do people do with them? They pass them by. They don't, they don't stop and pause and treat them like an ordinary human being a lot of times. By nature, people will just walk by them, ignore them because they don't wanna become involved in the mess, in the difficulty of relating to them. How about an outcast? How are they treated? They're passed by. They're less than people we want to be involved with. They're, they're beneath us. What do these people want? They want someone to praise them. They want to be renowned. They want to have a name. They want to be noticed. They want to be cared for. They want to be treated like a human being. And the Lord tells them uh, in verse 20, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. That's what these people are looking for. That's what we're all looking for, beloved. Because if we're not handicapped or we're not outcast in a certain sense, we are indeed those who are passed by and looking for love. We're looking for someone to love us. God turns our shame into praise, Revelation 22, 4. It's a glorious picture of this. His servants will see his face, that's us, and his name will be on their foreheads and they will reign forever and ever. We're gonna, we'll be on on a throne reigning, not literally on a throne, but will be reigning in heaven forever and ever. In this world off, beloved, we can oftentimes be trampled, overlooked, filled with nothing but shame, and we wanna be praised. We wanna be renowned or famous is actually a way to translate that. But in this world, we don't get it. In this world, even if we get it, got it, it wouldn't matter. And the Lord is saying, when it comes to the, the last day, look forward to a time when we'll be praiseworthy, we'll be praised, we'll be because we belong in the Lamb, 
and when we'll be famous or renowned because God's name will be written on our forehead. So again, when difficult circumstances hit, when the consequences of our sins start rolling over us, we can look forward to a day when there'll be no more shame, but in fact, there'll be praise. And then lastly, I guess two more things. How does he view us? And this is where I wanna spend a little bit of time. He views us two ways. How does our God view us? He views us with joy and with silence. So first, joy. If you look at verse 17, we're told this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Isaiah says something similar in 62.5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now, what does it mean that God exalts over us with loud singing? The same word is actually used in Psalm 32.11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O you righteous, and shout for joy, O you upright in heart. So as we shout for joy, the same language is used to describe God relating to us, that he is shouting for joy over us. Now, it's something to consider, something to, to marvel at. Why would God be shouting for joy over us? Well, here's why. Because he's done the impossible. Because he's made the unrighteous righteous. Because he's forgiven the unforgivable. Because he's paid debts that are unpayable. Because he's found a way to transform God-haters into God-worshippers. Because he's transformed proud rebels into willing slaves, hell-bound sinners into heaven-bound saints. And all the while, He's both just and the justifier. He hasn't given up one ounce of his justice, and yet he's displayed all of his justice and all of his mercy at the same time. Why is God singing over us? Why can we read in the Psalms, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints? Why, 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 why is God delighting these? Why are we precious even at our death? Because at our death, it's the culmination of all God's work. He finally brought us home. Why is God singing over us? Because he's done something that no human being can possibly do. Beloved, I mentioned this a few weeks back in the military uh, world of Ephesians 6. If you put all the world's armies together, how many people can they save? Think of all that power, all that gunpowder, all the power of a magnetic rail gun system on ships, all the, all the power of nuclear bombs. If you lit all of it off at the same time, how many people could you save? Not one. <laughs> we don't have the power, the ability, the strength to save even one person. God shows up and he saves a multitude. No human being can do this. Not the greatest minds, not the greatest hearts, not those with the greatest will. None of us can save ourselves. Why is God singing? It should be obvious. He's pulled off the impossible. He looks at us and says, look at this. I've done something that no one in all the world has ever done. In the history of the world, nobody's ever thought their way to being saved, willed their way to being saved, or loved their way to being saved. Nobody's ever done it. Look at what I've done. God delights in his work, beloved. Remember the Sabbath day, you know, the, the first Sunday, God rested and was refreshed. Well, he wasn't tired, right? God never grows tired. Well, what's he doing? Delighting in his work, exalting in his work. The same thing happens, beloved, not at creation, but at recreation when we're remade into the image of Christ, when we're saved, God delights in his work. Uh, Spurgeon put it this way, creation could not make God sing. In other words, we're told God rested and refreshed himself, but not that he sung. And I do not even know that providence ever brought a note of joy for God, for he could arrange a thousand kingdoms of providence with ease. 
But when it came to redemption, that cost him dear. Here he spent eternal thought and drew up a covenant with infinite wisdom. In our redemption, he gave his only begotten son and put him to grief to ransom his beloved ones. When all was done and the Lord saw what became of it in the salvation of his redeemed, then he rejoiced after a divine manner. What must the joy be which recompenses Gethsemane and Calvary? Beloved, it, it's hard to believe, but again, in difficult circumstances, God's singing over us. He's not loving our sin. He's, he's not loving the, the difficult that we might be in. God's loving us as his people because of what he's done for us and because of the future that's coming our way. He's singing about these things. But maybe the most profound thing is secondly, that he's silenced over us. How does he view us with joy, but also with silence? If you take a look at verse 17, in the ESV it says, he will quiet you by his love. Well, the you isn't in there in the original. He will quiet by his love. And so people wonder, what does it mean that, that he will quiet by his love? In the KJV, the King James, it says, he will rest in his love. And in the New American Standard Bible, it says he will be quiet in his love. It's literally he will keep quiet or be silent or keep still in his love. Now, the reason this is so hard to, to grapple with is that our God's a speaking God. <laughs> we, don't, we don't anywhere in the world find God to be silent, right? He speaks creation into existence. He speaks 66 books into existence. We have the Bible. God is speaking all the time. And when he speaks, it's perfect. He's a God who communicates. And so people come to this passage as they say, it can't possibly mean that God is not saying anything, that he's keeping silent. And yet, I'm, I'm telling you that that's exactly what's being said in Zephaniah 3.17. I believe that's exactly the translation. He will be quieted by his love, would be a more, a more literal rendering. Or the NASB, he will be quiet in his love. Now, I mentioned before, God has sort of quiet, been quiet on, on, on the end of creation week. And the silence is really a silence of admiration, a silence of being so amazed by what you see. Words can't do justice to it. If you've ever seen the movie Tombstone, there's a place where the whole Wyatt Earp family gets together and people are talking. I think Virgil's talking or somebody's talking and they walk in front of a window. And one of them says, I think it's Wyatt Earp, uh, who, who says, don't say anything, just look. In other words, stop all the talking, just, just look. Look in the window at all of us together. This, this was just gonna be impossible. How could this happen? Look at it, marvel at it. Uh, something similar as well to God being quiet by, by his love is a, a mother with her newborn baby in her arms. The mother doesn't have to say a word, does she? All the work, all the pain, all, everything the childbirth involved, and yet here she holds this baby. The mom can sit there and just be totally quieted by love for that child. Well, how is God quieted uh, by his love for us? I think there's two aspects of it. It's the quiet in order to save, and then it's the quiet after we are saved. So first, God's quieted in order to save us. Uh, as Jesus stood before Herod and Pontius Pilate, uh, he is the only one who could stump every single lawyer in the world. He confounded his enemies through words. They would come to him testing him and they would leave what? Scratching their heads because he tied them up in knots, put tests back on them, and they all walk away just kind of more ticked off than they came thinking, how are we going to get this guy? If he could have, if he would have spoken, he could have easily gotten himself off during his trial at Pontius Pilate or with Herod or with Caiaphas. He could have easily talked his way out of this. 
and yet out of his love for us, he was quiet. Isaiah puts it this way to describe what Jesus was doing in his silence. 53.7, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened on his mouth. Why was God quiet? Why was Christ quiet? Because of his love for us. Why didn't Jesus speak up? Yo, this is an injustice. I'm God. I'll show you. Here, I'll prove it. Want me to prove it again? Don't you dare crucify me. Why didn't he speak up? Because he loved us. Because he knows the only way to save these people is if I don't say a word. And I just go to that cross and I hang in their place, even though no one gets it. And I'd be raised from the grave. I'd be raised out of the tomb. He knows it. Beloved, Jesus Christ was silent when he needed to be so that we could be saved. But I think there's also the notion of this, that God is quieted by his love for us after we are saved. So Christ is quiet in order to save us, but after we're saved, God's quieted in this way. He looks at us and marvels. He's pulled something off that the world has never seen or ever will see or could ever do by itself. He's saved rebellious sinners and God loves it. He's quieted by it, meaning he's marveling at his work. And you're the work he's marveling at. You're the work that he's delighted over. You and me, unimpressive creatures. Christians all over the world, all of us, unimpressive creatures by nature. God's marveling, so quieted by his love for us and by what he's done to redeem us. Well, how should we respond to this? How should we respond? We're actually told uh, a few ways. Number one, we should rejoice. Verse 14, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Rejoice with all your heart. That's how we should respond. Challenging in difficult circumstances, isn't it? Very challenging. How do you sing in exile? How do you sing when the consequences of our sins are just right in front of us? We're going to have to face them very hard unless we know that in the midst of difficulty, God cares for us and loves us. It doesn't mean his love and care is going to remove us from the consequences of our sins. Not at all. We're going to face them. But it means in the midst of those consequences, he loves us and is singing over us and cares for us. Uh, the second way we respond is by not being afraid. Verse 16, fear not, O Zion. You know, it's easy to be afraid in this life, to be, to be afraid of the future, to especially when things start hitting us and going south in our lives. It's really, it's really easy to be afraid of the future. We think if it's bad now, how much worse is it going to get in the future? And yet the Lord doesn't want us to be afraid and worrying about, about the things that are coming down the pike. Some ways that we can be afraid are with worry. Worry can actually be an evidence of being afraid and not trusting in God and not delighting in his delight in us. Uh, Martin Luther, in a funny letter that he wrote to us, Katie, uh, kind of put worry in perspective, a humorous twist on it. I think it's worth reading to you. He wrote this, Martin Luther to the holy lady full of worries, grace and peace in Christ, uh, most holy Mrs. Doctor, I thank you very kindly for your great worry, which robs you of sleep. Since the date that you started to worry about me, the fire in my quarters right outside the room tried to devour me. And yesterday, no doubt because of the strength of your worries, a stone almost fell on my head and nearly squashed me as in a mousetrap. For in our secret chamber, which is the toilet room, Mortar has been falling down for about two days. We called in some people who merely touched the stone and it fell down with two fingers. The stone was as big as a long pillow and as wide as a large hand and intended to repay you for your holy worries had the dear angels not protected me. Now I worry that if you don't stop worrying, the earth will finally swallow us up and all the elements will chase us. Is this the way you learned the catechism and the faith? 
pray and let God worry. He concludes it, your holiness, willing servant, Martin Luther. Over there's a way to look at the future in our current circumstances and just be afraid. Be afraid what's coming down the pike and then have that issue forth and worry. What can be a, which can be another way of saying, I have to control what's coming down the pike. But if God's rejoicing in us and he's quieted in his love, his love is so great, he's just astonished at what he's created that we don't have to worry about the future. This is the God who loves us in the midst of it. We can also be afraid of condemnation. There is therefore no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but it can be something that's hard to grab a hold of. Is God really condemning me? Things are going bad. Consequences for my sin are coming to bear against my life. Is God against me or not? And it can feel like He is against me. He used to be for me when things are going well, so we think, erroneously, and now that things aren't going well anymore, He must be against me. And yet, we have to believe what God thinks of us in those times, that there's no condemnation in Christ, and that He's still singing about us and still quieted in His love for us, even in difficulty. Spurgeon put it this way, Have you never known passengers on board ship when the weather was rough, comforted by the calm behavior of the captain? One simple-minded soul said to his friend, I am sure there is no cause for fear, for I heard the captain whistling. Surely if the captain is at ease and with him is all the responsibility, the passenger may still be more at peace. And if the Lord Jesus at the helm is singing, let us not be fearing. Let us have done with every timorous accent. Meaning this, beloved, we might be afraid of what's coming down the pike in our lives. We might be afraid that we're condemned. But if God's still singing over us, if he's still quieted by his love for us, and he is doing both of those, then we don't have to be afraid either. We might be scared, we'll go through difficulty, but we don't have to be afraid because our God's still singing. In other words, in God's world, nothing's really going wrong. Everything's on schedule, and he's bringing us through difficulty as only he can. I'd like to just conclude with this. Uh, sometimes life hits, and we know we deserve what's coming our way. Consequences that were due the Israelites came their way. And God knows, beloved, that we're gonna commit sins or we already have, and we're gonna face consequences that are just hard. God knows this. And he so knows it that he says, I'm gonna give my people hope for when that day comes. And the hope is that we'll arrive at a different place someday where there's no need to be afraid where we can know that God is singing over us, where God's delighting in us. In the midst of that difficulty then, be reminded of this, that when we're suffering, when we're going through consequences that are, that are due our sin, when we've done wrong and we're paying for it, not in the sense of paying for sins, but when we've done wrong and then we're having to own up to it and all that difficulty, God wants us to know, I'm still singing over you. I still love you. I'm quieted by my love over you. Let's pray.